When it comes to death and life, we have a choice. We can either allow our dying to creep up unnoticed until we fade away, or we can live life with purpose and choose to die well. Hello, and welcome to Brookings First United Methodist Church's podcast, Conversations with Pastor Pete. This season is called Dying on Purpose, in the hope that this series will help us to think about death and living life well. This season will evoke differences of opinion. Not all Christians see these issues in the same way. These differences are a result of varying experiences in life, the way in which the Bible is read, and strongly held opinions. Our Methodist tradition has always made space for differences of opinion. Methodist founder Rev. John Wesley urged tolerance of different opinions. He wrote, Right opinion is at best but a slender part of religion, and frequently is not a part of religion at all. We hope this series will teach us all how to live and let live. I have a very feeble, bad joke. Yeah. People are always talking about euthanasia, and I can't help but wonder when we're going to start talking about youth in America. <laughs> Thank you for coming. Um, Let us pray together. Lord God, you have given us this amazing, fragile, wonderful gift of life. And we pray that we might honor this gift, that we might live our lives in a way that reminds everyone that life is holy. So receive these discussions and, and allow our thinking to be touched by your spirit. This we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. And you no doubt by now will have realized that I'm not going to stand up here and give you an easy answer because the questions are difficult questions. And I'm fully aware that there are some Christian leaders out there who provide one-line answers, but I think they do a disservice to the struggle in thinking about life. I think we, we need to value life, absolutely. I said it the first week, I'll keep saying it, I am pro-life. I, I will defend life in all its forms. But for that reason, I do think we mustn't skate around these issues as if they're simple, because they're not. Today we look at euthanasia, next week we look at suicide. I've separated the two, although lots of writing 
puts the two in the same category because somewhere in the middle you have what's called assisted suicide. That's where the crossover happens. So do you, euthanasia can include assisted suicide. Um, so you might hear um, next week a pickup of some of what we discussed this week. I have, I have put a reading at the top of the page. I'll come back to the reading next week. It's a passage, 1 Samuel 31, the first six verses. A fascinating passage where Saul, King Saul, has been hunted down by his enemies. And he is at a point that he knows he can no longer win. So he turns to his sword bearer and asks his sword bearer, to kill him. My life is at an end. Please help me to do so. The sword bearer is terrified and says, no, I will not do it. In essence, you are God's anointed king. I cannot take your life. And so Saul then falls on his own sword. I just picked it as one example, very the very messiness of life and death. I will kind of read through it, allow space for discussion. Hopefully we can have space for discussion at the end. I'm going to invite Larry to offer input as well. Um, there are two arguments. There's an argument against euthanasia there's an argument for euthanasia, and there is stuff in between. Advances in technology and changing social norms force Christians to confront ethical issues about death that rarely arose in the past. For example, there are sophisticated medical devices that can keep a patient alive in ways that were once impossible. But what if a patient or a patient's family does not wish these mechanisms to be used? You could stay alive, the family says, don't do it. And I really, really agonize with the medical, um, the doctors, the nurses in these situations. Is it incumbent on the state or the medical authorities to then intervene and insist the life of the patient be extended because we can? A second example, if a terminally ill person chooses to die, can that person access the advances in medical assistance available so that they can die with dignity? Quote, unquote. What actions are ethically permissible? Although Jesus does not speak of either euthanasia or assisted suicide directly, 
Our Christian faith demands a thoughtful, loving approach to this subject. The value of human life in all its forms and at all stages is the central theme of the gospel of Jesus who encourages us to love one another as he has loved us. Hear me clearly, I am not going to allow us to back down when we talk about the value of human life. There are not some lives that are more valuable than other lives. All of life is valuable and all of life must be treated with dignity and respect. So there are two views in this debate. And each expresses a concern that people should end their lives or have their lives ended in such a way that it's not an affront to human dignity, theirs and others. I think it's really unhelpful for us to take a position on one side or the other and call the others the devil. <laughs> because it is such a complicated discussion. So let me walk us through, and this is, oh, I'll walk us through some arguments against euthanasia. This begins by affirming that all human life is created in the image of God. And as such, is sacred. Once we make this statement of faith that says, life is created in the image of God, all life is touched by God, is tinged with a sign of God. Life is uh, life is therefore to be given our unqualified protection. In this view, any form of euthanasia contradicts the principle of the inviability of human life. To practice euthanasia is to transgress that commandment found in the Ten Commandments, you shall not kill, is a direct affront to God's lordship over human life. The argument says, the moment I presume to take life, I'm making myself God. Only God can give life. Only God can take life. Let me not dare to become God in someone else's life. It also goes against the professional code of doctors and nurses. Their duty is to preserve the life of the patient and relieve any suffering to the best of their ability. The Hippocratic Oath, which doctors take. Do nurses take this as well, Brenda? Okay, so doctors. It reads, I will neither give a deadly drug to anyone who asked for it, nor will I make a suggestion to this effect. At your graduation, doctors make this promise. Those who subscribe to the oath promise to refrain from participating in two actions now known as euthanasia and physician-assisted suicide. So to even ask a doctor, can you end the life of my loved one, in a sense flies in the face of an oath that doctors around the world subscribe to. It's really unlikely you're going to find a doctor who will sign on to help you end somebody's life. 
Thirdly, to allow voluntary active euthanasia in the case of terminally ill patients is to open the door to possible abuse. Such acts could lead to the killing of the weak, the helpless and the unwanted. One of the horrors that we uncover during World War II was the experimentation on terminally ill people that were practiced in Nazi Germany and in later years uncovered also by Japanese doctors who practiced, experimented on Chinese prisoners of war. In fact, the Japanese used a word, they turned their prisoners, they used a word that described their prisoners as logs. Wooden logs, you can experiment on a wooden log. You've devalued the person and you therefore can practice. Um, and they have extensive research on practicing ways in which people can die. The motive of the people who ask for their lives to be taken are also questioned. We cannot be sure that cases are as hopeless as often claimed. Maybe this patient's life is not at an end, although the patient feels like their life is, and who knows what their recovery could be. And mistakes can be made by doctors in their diagnosis of a patient's condition. Surprise, surprise, doctors are not infallible. They make mistakes. What's that old joke, Rick? Doctors bury their mistakes. Yeah. Did that make sense? I want you to be clear. There's a really cogent argument to be made against euthanasia. We have to embrace it. We have to hear it. We have to understand it. That said, there are some arguments to be made for euthanasia. It's argued that where people clearly do not enjoy an adequate quality of life, the practice of euthanasia should not be excluded. Quality of life is concerned with personal well-being, with a sense of worth and dignity. St. Paul urges Christians not to cling too tightly to this earthly tent and to be ready to put on the heavenly body. Living at all costs, says Paul, is not the point. In fact, Paul quite bluntly talks about anticipating the moment that he leaves this life. 2 Timothy 4, 6-8. Those who argue in favor of euthanasia often ask whether there really is any moral difference between voluntary passive and voluntary active euthanasia. Can one really claim that to stop treatment once it's been started or to not start treatment at all is ethically better than actively ending the life of a person who wants to die? Is there a difference between saying, let's not continue the treatment of this person and helping that person to die? Withholding treatment is as much participation in a person's death as giving treatment that assists death. 
What's the real difference between accelerating death using drugs that are meant to kill the pain and administrating a lethal dose that will end it all quickly? There are two basic values that are honored when voluntary active euthanasia takes place. The first is compassion for those suffering. And the second, that of personal autonomy or self-determination. A person has the right to choose death, and that right should be respected. Larry, come talk to us. Let me pass the buck. And then I'll allow a comment. I've, I've put up two positions, and, and you have to hear, they both are understandable, they both are difficult. I, I don't think I shared with you last week um, that actually I have a PhD in philosophy. And uh, before coming into the ministry, and some of you might have known Robert Wagner, former president of SDSU, and you can thank Robert Wagner for steering me toward the priesthood. Robert and I were very dear friends the last years of his life, and uh, he looked at me one day and he said, I so wish you were an Episcopal priest. And um, I really began to think about it and um, had considered the ministry before in my life and um, um, really felt that my teaching and my work was a form of ministry, but this time it, it took hold. So at age 65, I was ordained a minister, and um, I love it. Let me share that with you, but... Uh, but I, I do have a PhD in philosophy from Michigan State University, and I've taught ethics for a number of years and uh, have wrestled with these questions with students in various contexts. And uh, it's, always, it's always interesting to, um, to engage students in discussions on these. So... Um, One of the things that comes to mind, sometimes, too, these issues are, well, you know, if you, if you look at the arguments against euthanasia and the arguments for euthanasia, as with all of our major, major ethical problems, there's a conflict in ethical principles. Okay? Um, arguments against euthanasia thou shalt not kill. Now, we could get into some real questions about what is the exact intent of thou shalt not kill. Um, you know, if you, if you get into a language study, it really is, uh, it's, it's more appropriate to say thou shalt not murder, okay, than kill. Um, we kill all the time. As one of my professors said, we can't walk from here to the door over there without killing something. And um, so we, we're killing microorganisms, everything. Um, so thou shalt not murder as it comes to human beings. And then the argument for euthanasia, a person has a right to their own autonomy, autonomy of will to make their own decisions and to act on those decisions. 
So we have this fundamental conflict between these two principles. And one of the things that I always ask of my students, required of them as a matter of fact, is that they put together uh, their own, well, they started by identifying their values, the key values that they held. And then they had to identify key principles, the assumptions behind those principles, and ultimately rank order their ethical principles. Which principle takes priority? And um, it, was, it was quite a task for them, as you can imagine. And um, I encouraged them. I said, what I want you to do is hang on to this paper. And five years from now, take it out and read it again and see if your thinking has changed, and if so, how. Ten years, take it out again. See if your thinking has changed, and if so, how. And our thinking, I believe, does change on these topics based on cultural exposure, our various experiences that we have. Okay, um, what happens if I have a very close relative who is in intractable pain, which cannot be alleviated. And there are such cases, though they may be few, there are such cases where that pain cannot be alleviated. Is it, um, is it honorable to stand by and to deny them the drugs that would allow them an easy exit? Or would it be better to make the drugs available? Allow them to take the drugs if they so chose. So these are the sorts of things that we run up against in life that, uh, that really serve to challenge us. Um, I've often thought, if it were my own wife, who were in that situation, um, I would, I would provide the drugs if she requested it and uh, if both of us felt after considerable prayer that um, we agreed that it was a course of action that could be taken. And yet, if it comes down to the bottom line, I have tremendous trouble euthanizing a pet cat. Okay even when I know that it's for the cat's benefit that I do it. But we euthanize certain animals. Years and years ago, there was a movie. I don't know if any of you remember this, but it was entitled, They Shoot Horses, Don't They? And uh, Any of you remember seeing that? Yeah. But it wrestled with this issue in a very powerful way. So um, let's throw it open for some questions, Pete, and... Uh, Yeah, there's, um, I think there's a, a difference. Uh, hospice, I believe, fulfills a wonderful, wonderful service for people. And um, one of the things that I wish people would take further consideration and, and look at more deeply is the whole question of allowing nature to take its course. 
Um, I, think, I think there's a difference between deciding to forego a course of treatment and allowing nature to take its course. I don't see that that is a form of suicide. Okay. Um, I'm not actively doing anything to take my own life. I'm simply allowing nature to step in and do what nature does. Okay. Hospice is there to assist people in terms of pain management, and not only pain management, but the emotional aspects of dying. Um, yeah, right. And by that, it includes relationships with family members and hopefully reconciliation and, and those sorts of things. So I, I can't say enough good about hospice. I think it's a wonderful, wonderful service. And, uh, but it's a, it's a very fine line, and I'll, I'll share with you. I have been in a situation where a person was dying. Uh, they knew that there was no hope, and the person was, was suffering in pain, and they gave the morphine okay, to assuage the pain. Um, was more given than was necessary? I don't know. But at what point? You know, at some point, if you administer enough morphine, death is going to result. Yeah. So at what point? But, um, but there are a number of, of ethical questions. You know, once we start down this slope, as they say, it could be the slippery slope. And then, well, you're costing the government too much money. This isn't what the taxpayers can bear. Um, it's time to pull the plug. You've had your chance. So. You're getting to that stage, aren't you? Pardon? You're getting there. <laughs> By the way, I'll share with you that um, we haven't mentioned Dr. Jack Kevorkian yet. And uh, I'm sure some of you remember uh, Dr. Jack Kevorkian. He was operating in the state of Michigan, and I went into work one day, and he was this nice envelope on my desk, and I opened it up, and it was a certificate for a free visit to Dr. Jack. You didn't make use of it. <laughs> um, we are not minimizing the difficulty of the issue. Um, I, I hope you hear both of us are refusing to give a simple answer. I read an article um, and, and then had to do more reading to discover there is a school of thought by Christians out there that for me is really unhelpful that says, well, the Bible says suffering is part of life. And if people suffer, we just need to pray for them and hold their hand. I recognize that's a school of thought. I just think that's really unloving. To say to somebody who's suffering, well, I will pray for you. Or even, I'll hold your hand while you suffer. When we have technology available to help alleviate suffering. And the moment we have that discussion is the moment this becomes really complicated. 
because we have technology available does not absolve us from asking moral questions. But we need to use that which we have available. And it's at this point it becomes difficult. Many years ago, I sat at the bedside. I'd, I belonged to a running club, and a member of the club had been hit by a car while running and was lying in ICU. And I sat at his bedside with his wife and had this extremely difficult conversation. The doctor said his brain function has ceased. But there were machines that were keeping him alive. He was breathing. His kidneys were working because machines were making this work. And his wife turned to me and said, what shall I do? As if I could come up with an answer. That, that's exactly the difficulty we face. What shall I do? This is my beloved who is being kept alive by machines. If we switch off the machines, the doctors have said he will stop living. Do I even have the right to switch off a machine? And there have been agonized debates around the world in various courts. A very famous case in England of a young man who had been injured in a football match, Hillsborough, um, Stadium collapsed and he was injured and he was being kept alive on machines. And his family insisted that while the machines kept him alive, there was life. And the doctors were saying, we need to consider this because he's not alive. And it landed up in court and you had this legal debate about what exactly was life. Are you alive when the machines keep you alive? It's a torturous, awful debate. And I'm not pretending there's an easy way out of it. Because in the one hand, you're valuing life. Life is precious and must be valued. But is it life if the machines keep you alive? I don't know. But I did follow the life of Christopher Reeve for many years. Do you remember Christopher Reeve? Superman? Who landed up on machines. And he knew those machines were keeping him alive. He was conscious. He was paralyzed. Did he have life? He said he had quality of life because he chose to make something of his life. Others could have said, you've got no life, let's switch the machines off. How do you make those decisions? It's, it's a messed up discussion. Anyone else want to add to the messiness? I know I can pick on Rick, but it'll be really unfair. So let me pick on Joni. She's a, she's a nurse. <laughs> Talk to us, Joni. Yeah, I do. This was a subject he was so passionate about. Thank you. Well, I, I pulled the book today because I knew that there was a whole chapter on it. And I, it, you guys said it, the word is intent. You know, the, if the intent is to kill, it's not acceptable. But to allow natural death is acceptable. 
Um, you know, there was a situation many years ago Rick was called into. Um, some of you may remember it, a, a baby who had, and he didn't do babies, but he still got called in, but um, the baby had anencephaly, so no brain, ba basically. Unfortunately, at the time, and this was 30 years ago, I bet, the hospital wanted the ba baby to be on tube feedings. No, no, it, the, the, the family, all of you, the whole thing is talking about it, being prepared. What, what are your thoughts and your feelings? And if we don't talk about it, and then the family is really stuck on how do we do this. But, you know, I lived through this, and some of you have done the same thing. I knew exactly what Rick wanted. And his death was peaceful. And did we use morphine in the end? Yeah, we did. Carefully, small amounts. But, you know, he, in hindsight, I look at it, and he always talked about dehydration. Rick, you probably think about this too, that if you allow yourself to be dehydrated, you your brain is not functioning as well, and it's basically very peaceful. Rick did that slowly over time. So do I think he would... Do I think he had a bad death? Not at all. You know, he, he monitored and he, he directed it. And that's what, I mean, I, I think the key is that we have to direct our own. And, and how do we do that? Talk to our families right now so that they know your wishes and you, they're not stuck going, now what? You know, the football player or the, the, your running buddy. I mean, it's hard when you're in your 30s and 40s but it's necessary. Start talking about it then so that you can have that comfort to say, no, allow natural death. And taking someone off a machine is allowing natural death. And take, not putting a feeding tube in or taking a feeding tube out, totally acceptable to take it out. Totally acceptable to take someone off a ventilator because that's not natural. So... I've been greatly influenced, uh, but I believe it 100%. And if you have the book, it's, um, and I can get you this book, one, you know, 150, right around there. That is a whole bunch. And, and the word intent is, is one of the keys in, in Rick's mind. And so, therefore, I've bought into it, too. Yes. We did. Rick and I had a lot of good discussions, and I, uh, I miss him greatly. Um, he was a real asset in our community. Uh, Pete, you mentioned a case. Uh, I'm aware of another case, and this happened in Michigan. I've never been able to track down all of the details about it, but there was a high-speed chase involving two state police officers at night, far out in the country. They lost control of the car, crashed. The driver was pinned. His partner was able to get out, but the car started burning. And his partner was beginning to suffer the pain from the fire. And he begged his partner, he says, put a bullet through my brain, please. Don't let me die this agonizing death. And his partner did it, and the state went wild. 
Okay, again, question of intent. The intent was there to clearly kill the man to alleviate an absolutely horrible, horrible death. You could say this was an act of mercy, a, a true act of love and compassion. But the state apparently could not deal with it. So, so there are times when we run up against these situations that, you know, what do I do? What, what is indeed the most loving action that I can possibly take for this individual that the individual desires that I do take. And if I were going to err on any side, that's the side that I personally would want to err on. But I, I think I mentioned this my last visit here. Um, Soren Kierkegaard mentioned, he said, uh, on, on issues like this, we can, we can always find as many reasons for as, as against. It, all it takes is a good imagination. And he says, at some point in time, you are forced to make a decision. You have to say, this is what I'm going to do. God bless my choice. And, and that's about all we hope for. Does that mean you will never question your choice? No. That's part of what it means to be human. We'll look back and we'll question that choice, etc. But, uh, so... I do owe it to us to give us the possession of the United Methodist Church. So I'm going to read on page two, and this is lifted directly from the United Methodist Church's Book of Discipline. The United Methodists affirm that God has continued love and purpose for all persons regardless of health. Christ's promise of abundant life continues while we live. We affirm this promise, even and especially in the face of impending death. Instead of seeking death, we look for ways to relieve pain, support caregivers, and bring as much hope, love, joy, comfort, and meaning to the final days and hours of life as we are able. This is why United Methodists encourage the use of hospice care where available. United Methodists are also deeply aware of the ways cultures may devalue the lives of older adults and others facing impending death. In too many situations, such persons are considered or made to feel as if their continued existence is merely a burden and not the blessing that God intends. United Methodists remain deeply concerned that even in the best of scenarios provided under current legal protection, those facing the prospect of death may be unduly pressured to choose death instead of life. United Methodists are committed to helping one another choose life as long as it may last. At the same time, United Methodists recognize the distinction between medical aid in dying, which actively promotes death, and providing care appropriate to one's stage of dying. United Methodists support individuals and families making decisions with their physicians for the sake of reducing pain, 
and not prolonging life where there is no reasonable hope for recovery. Which I hope didn't sound like fancy footwork, but in effect which says, while we as a church would never promote actively assisting someone to die, we would absolutely promote providing medical care to alleviate pain and to cease to prolong life, quote, where there is no reasonable hope of recovery, which is taking someone off a machine that breathes for you or not putting tubes in. The phrase Joni used, to allow a natural death, ultimately says, even though we have the technology that could prolong this life, we need to ask, but should we? Is prolonging life the point, or is living well the point? I think Larry gives us a key, and for me it's the key of Jesus, that really asks, what is the most loving thing that we can do in this circumstance? Because the injunction of Jesus, the filter Jesus gives us, love one another as I have loved you. Our motivation always has to be love. And my sense of repugnance when I have read of doctors experimenting on terminally ill patients for the sake of curiosity, for the sake of medical science, there's no room for love in that. There might be room for career advancement or for the advancement of knowledge, but there's no love for those that you're experimenting on. Rick, you want to comment? Um, you don't have to. For the sake of the podcast. Well, there's a couple things I would say. My first thought is that we all have to realize we are all terminal. We just don't know when. You know, so a lot of these situations are when, when the uh, you can see the end of the road, so to speak. Um, and the other comment I'll make is that I have personally given at least one patient I can think of um, a lot of morphine because he had uh, terminal uh, brain cancer and had agony, and this was way back before I came to Brookings. Uh, they, we gave them some morphine, and they called, and they said, well, we've given them as much morphine as we can. And I said, how much is that? Well, five milligrams. I said, give them five more. Really? Yeah. yeah so, you know, 35 years ago, it was very uh, kind of thin ice to, to give somebody more drugs or more drugs. I said, make him comfortable. Give him as much as he needs to be comfortable. And they did. And he died within 24 hours. But his wife was extremely happy that he finally had some measure of relief. Now, lately, you know, we've talked about using medical marijuana for terminal cancer relief. And there's been a huge outcry for it and a huge outcry against it, you know, and all this kind of stuff. And, you know, my personal feeling is if it helps somebody who's having horrible pain in their terminal, give it to them. What are, what are we hurting? You know, that's, that's the loving thing to do. Um, and again, that, that's the way 
I come down to these types of decisions about what someone would do. Um, I, you know, I've never actively tried to kill anybody, although some people might argue <laughs> that statement. Um, you know, and then there's been times I, I can remember one gentleman that was horribly burned that we fought and fought and fought in the emergency room to save his life. I mean, we had to do all kinds of procedures and put tubes in and everything. And I knew he was going to die. You know, we could have done nothing. But what we did there for him was we, we allowed him to be conscious and spend a day and a half or two days with his family before he did die, which the family came back and thanked us profusely for. You know, so it, it's hard for me to make a blanket statement about what I would do in any particular situation. You have to look at the situation and say, these are the factors we're given. What's the best thing we can do? Oh, yes, it does. And, you know, again, another thing I have is a family who wanted to keep their family member alive no matter what. He was not going to die. He's not going to die. He had terminal pancreatic cancer. And, you know, I tried to gently tell them this, but, you know, he went for every treatment and go get all kinds of stuff done and everything and and, you know, when he finally did collapse at one of his treatments in another city far, far away, uh, they took him to the hospital, and, of course, they put tubes in him everywhere and did all kinds of stuff and tried to keep him alive for another day, and, and he died anyway. And then the family came back and said, it was just awful. There were tubes everywhere. I didn't know how terrible this was going to be in his last day of life, which is unfortunate because I knew it would be that way, but I just couldn't convince that family about what was going to happen. One other thing that comes to mind on this, this whole debate, too, on the the arguments against euthanasia, um, that commandment, thou shalt not kill, grounded in being created in the image of God. I think sometimes we get fixated in terms of our physical image of God. Um, some people believe that we are born physical, temporal, and we aspire to become eternal. Um, again, to quote my favorite philosopher, Soren Kierkegaard, no. We are bone, born both physical and eternal. We are this wild, wonderful admixture of the spiritual and the material. And modern physics nowadays is beginning to question that distinction, as a matter of fact, which I find quite fascinating. But... Um, We have to remember that when, as, as again, to come back to St. Paul, when this body dies, in terms of our faith, we do not look at that as the end. 
It is the beginning. It is the beginning. So how does love, again, filter into this? Um, what's, what's the principle of love and how does it respond to that wonderful recognition of the fact that we are indeed both physical and spiritual beings? I'm going to pull this together, and, and as each week, I'm going to apologize if you came here looking for a one-line answer, because you're not going to get a simple, here's the paragraph that you can hang all your stuff on. My intention is to raise more questions. I am pleading with you to talk to your families, that your families do know what your wishes are. My family knows clearly that I do not wish to have my life prolonged by machines. Put it in writing. Larry's comment, put it in writing. It 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 is a is it is messy. For for the sake of those who are listening, let me just recap. Even though we might have put it in writing, we might still find our children arguing against our wishes. Some of this is wrapped up in the fear of death the fear of the finiteness of this physical death. And we do need to talk to our families about the fact that we believe there's life after death. And the death is not the end. I like Larry's phrase, death could be the beginning of something brand new. And let's not become so frightened of death that we have to stay alive at all costs. No matter what, we shall keep our parent alive. Because staying alive is not the point. Living life is the point. Living life with love is the point. And I would also plead with us if we know of other families who, have, who, who, who are living with someone who's terminally ill, let's give them courage and love. Because they are in a difficult situation. And our task is to love them and to hang out with them. Not to tell them what to do but certainly to help them as they struggle with somebody who's terminally ill. So, so I hope you heard me. We value life deeply. We do not experiment on life. We do not uh, treat uh, people who are dying as if they are worthless because their lives have value until they take their last breath. But if we value their lives, we can also help people die well. And I can't commend the hospice care enough. An absolutely amazing, wonderful organization. Um, just, just a gift to us all. Larry, do you want to pray for us? I'd like to make one more comment before I close this in prayer. Yeah, <laughs> um, and this has happened since COVID began, but.
but I visited a, a patient who was in the process of dying, and we were specifically instructed to have no contact with the patient. And I, I looked at this individual and I said, I would love nothing better than to come over there and give you a big hug. And his face lit up and I could see he wanted that. And I abided by the hospital standard. I wish I hadn't. It didn't make any difference. We knew he was going to die. If I had COVID and gave him COVID, wouldn't have made a bit of difference. But I, I look back now and I say, I should have given that man the biggest hug, you know, and supported him. So you've heard me mention Soren Kierkegaard a couple of times. I'm going to put him in plug. Um, I'm going to be conducting a book study group starting in November, first and third Thursday evenings at 6 o'clock on Soren Kierkegaard's book, Purity of Heart is to Will One Thing. And I, I plan on uh, actually putting that notice in the paper, but anybody is welcome to join us for that at St. Paul's Episcopal Church. And please be advised, I am in no way attempting to proselytize any of Pete's congregation. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> we need to do more things collaboratively and work together. Let us pray. God, we thank you for this opportunity to meet to discuss contemporary moral issues, to consider the various facets of them. We recognize that life is sometimes messy and very complex, that there really are no easy answers, but you have given us one principle that we can always fall back on, to love our neighbors as we love ourselves and to love each other, that they may know that we are your disciples. We thank you for this principle. We pray for the grace and the courage to live more fully into it. Be with each one of us now as we depart this time together. Amen. Thank you for listening to this episode of Conversations with Pastor Pete. To get every episode delivered to you, Subscribe to this podcast for free and leave us a review wherever you get your favorite podcasts. You can always find information about our services and outreach on our website at brookingsmethodist.org and on our Facebook page, Brookings First United Methodist Church. On behalf of the pastors of Brookings First United Methodist Church, thank you for listening and see you next time. This podcast was produced by Sam Becker on behalf of First United Methodist Church in Brookings, South Dakota. Intro and outro music was performed by Ted DeLang under CCLI license number 936719, streaming plus license number 2103961. Visit brookingsmethodist.org for more information.